Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. It's How are so you? nice to meet you. I'm meeting up with Rachel Lorenzo, one of the co-founders of Indigenous Women Rising, a native-led reproductive justice collective. Rachel is Mescalero Apache, Laguna Pueblo, and Chicana. I reached out to them last summer to talk about my reporting on access to abortion services in Indian country. They invited me to their ancestral lands on the Mescalero Apache Reservation in New Mexico to meet their family. I think I saw two, yeah. These are your kiddos? Hi, I'm Adriana. My name is Jude. Then wait, what was your name? Uh, Adelie. Adelie. I like that name. I like. Jude we meet too. just outside the Mescalera Reservation so that we can carpool to an annual period ceremony, also known as a feast. The ceremony takes place on grounds created specifically for the event. The parking lot is overflowing with cars and families. Yeah, maybe we did get lucky with that spot, huh? Oh, Where are these people gonna park? Oh, I don't know. As we make the trek up to the ceremony. Rachel walks me through some of the meanings behind the tradition. Explain to me again what is a period ceremony. They call it rite of passage ceremonial, where young people who have had their periods are celebrated for starting their period. And it's four days of dancing and vendors and prayer and... It is one of the things I love best about being Native is having this, and I'm so so um, grateful to have been able to experience it myself. Yeah. Want to go look for club one At first glance, it's like stepping into a county fair, full of concession stands selling everything from cotton candy and strawberry lemonade. I think I want something to eat. To carnival games like ring toss. Have you ever had a Kool-Aid pickle? What? Mm. What does that mean? Oh my god, it is so good, my favorite! But once you look past the angsty preteens milling around and the colorful blinking lights of the games, you notice something unique about most of the vendors. They're all selling things, like handcrafted beaded jewelry and hats that read stuff like dances with aunties. Those are really pretty. Let's look here first because I want to see if they have a pair from my mom. Not even the mix of chatter, laughter, and people playing games can drown out the sounds of the singing and dancing coming from the arbors of the ceremonial dance grounds. Guests watch the period ceremony from semicircle bleacher seats while arbors and teepees close off the circle on the other side. The ceremony is a reenactment of the Apache creation story, and in the middle of it all is the biggest fire I've ever seen. Crown dancers circle around the fire, 
unlocking the door to the spirit world as they dance, while those who are going through the ceremony test their strength by dancing into the night, wearing heavy beaded buckskin dresses, allowing them to become white painted women and take on her powers, as she is the model of heroic and virtuous womanhood. And I had my puberty ceremony in August of 2005. For me, it was one of the most beautiful things and the hardest things I've ever prepared for and ever done. Back at Rachel's home, they remember their own period ceremony and show me their medicine bundle, which is hanging on the wall in the middle of their living room. I had to harvest all of these items, and it has like mesquite and minerals in them to make for paint. And so this brush bundle was used to paint my face like white painted woman on the last day of my ceremony. So The lessons from going through this rite of passage ceremony take years to learn and require working with medicine people in preparation to meet white painted woman. These lessons teach young people to know how to take care of the land, and become leaders in the community, which is why Rachel believes Native people have specific needs when it comes to reproductive justice, needs that are deeply holistic and embedded in their cultural history, a history that has also been impacted by colonization. There is a Pueblo woman who won Miss Indian World in the 90s, and her talent was identifying plants native to the southwest and it was in a form of a book the pueblo woman is shay lucero and her book medicinal plants of the acoma and laguna pueblos is full of traditional plant knowledge for everyday uses but what's not included is the sacred knowledge about some plants that would be used for delicate ceremonies plants that you take to start a period how to start your period is code for how to have an abortion. If you missed your period, there are plants out there that our ancestors used to start a period. Like, we've been doing this for a long time. Over the last couple of years, even before the current assault on reproductive rights, I began researching Native people's fight for abortion access in the United States. The number of abortions Native people receive is extremely hard to pin down because of the lack of access to accurate data, as Native people are often just an asterisk or lumped with other demographic groups. In fact, for the last 20 years, one of the only published data sets available was from a 2002 study put out by the Native American Women's Health Education Resource Center. So I've interviewed more than a dozen activists and advocates. I've submitted FOIAs, poured over decades of reports, and even created my own data set with the hopes of piecing together this scattered history. And what I found in my reporting is that not only is data on abortion in Indian country scarce, but so is access to the service itself. Though the federal government is obligated to provide tribes with health care, decades-old restrictions on federal funding have severely limited the provision of abortion. Advocates like Rachel say those limitations are consistent with the government's long history of manipulating Native people's reproductive well-being. In the past, it has limited access to contraception, sterilized people without consent, 
and destroyed homes with its family separation policies. And while newly enacted state bans don't impact federal abortion rules, they do mean that Native people who don't receive federally funded abortions will have an even harder time getting the care they need. So for the last year, I've also been following Rachel and the Reproductive Justice Collective, Indigenous Women Rising, or IWR, as they work to fill the gap left by the government's failure to provide adequate health care, a gap that has left Native people struggling to have sovereignty over their own bodies. Since the summer of 2021, the nation's seen the highest number of abortion restrictions enacted in a single year, including the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Rachel has been advocating for reproductive rights and abortion in Native communities for much longer. Because for a lot of Native people, Roe has never been a reality. This is Vice News Reports, and I'm Adriana Rodriguez, a producer on the show and your host for this week's episode. Throughout college, I volunteered for political campaigns, congressional, city council, Just whatever I could get my hands on, I volunteered. In 2012, while working for President Obama's re-election campaign, Rachel was recommended by their supervisor, Deb Holland, who is now the Secretary of the Interior, for a paid position on the Respect Albuquerque Women campaign. And this campaign was to defeat a 20-week abortion ban in Albuquerque. The campaign was a success, and to date, the state of New Mexico does not have any major abortion restrictions. There are no waiting periods, no parental notification or consent laws, and no limitations on publicly funded abortions. But during my time on that campaign, I was the only Native person, and that felt really isolating. There were some microaggressions and some kind of well-intentioned but racist comments about not looking Native or assumptions about who I am or my background. Yeah, I just felt really lonely. While working on the campaign and raising their daughter, Adelie, Rachel also learned that they were pregnant for the second time. And after they helped defeat the ballot measure, Rachel began having pregnancy complications. I had remembered my doctor saying, uh, if it hurts to stand up straight, you need to go to the ER. When they went to the hospital for emergency care, they found out that the fetus was not viable. They were told by their doctor that it would expel itself and were sent home. Rachel knew to expect some pain and bleeding. Then I started having, like, contractions. But after severely bleeding and having contractions, they decided to go back to the hospital. And it hurt so bad. They were having a miscarriage and needed a dilation and curatage, or DNC, to remove the tissue from their uterus, a surgical procedure that is used for some abortions. But at the hospital... Rachel said they were placed in a triage room and given pain medication. They got me to the back. Then I just started gushing blood. It would be hours later before they finally saw a doctor. I was like, please just make it stop. But even then, Rachel continued to lay, waiting, untreated, in what they say was the most pain they have ever experienced in their life. 
Eventually, they received DNC. And I just remember feeling, like, so humiliated. But Rachel said the experience left them feeling traumatized, humiliated, and depressed. They developed an opioid addiction from the medication prescribed to treat their pain. Nothing I grew up with could have prepared me for that kind of experience. And I just, I really wanted to just have a space to talk about reproductive health. I didn't hear of a lot of my relatives talking about miscarriage or abortion or even breastfeeding. Rachel says that there is still a lot of stigma and taboo associated with topics like abortion and breastfeeding in their community, stemming from decades of colonization. Like, there are so many Catholics back home who are, you know, anti-abortion, anti-LGBTQ, but pride themselves on being fluent in the language and knowing the traditions. And I, I really wanted to talk about those things because I know I couldn't be the only one. And I know I just felt so alone being depressed, addicted, trying to get through school. So that's how Indigenous Women Rising got started. It was born out of this really desperate need for community. For the next couple of years, Rachel focused on overcoming their addiction. They went to grad school, learned everything they could about hospitals, health insurance, and abortion clinics, with the goal of creating a culturally safe space for Native experiences within the reproductive health care system, all while caring for a toddler. A few years after IWR was established, Rachel became pregnant for the third time while using an IUD. They had a hard time finding a doctor to remove it and were told by providers that the extreme bleeding they were experiencing was normal, but eventually they miscarried once more. After that, Rachel and their husband began the paperwork to have a tubal ligation, but before they had the procedure, they found out they were pregnant again. I found out I was pregnant with my son, and my husband was like, I don't think you should do this. Like, I don't want to lose you. Pregnancy was already really hard. And so I was like, you know what? Abortion is always on the table. Like, if it comes to that, like, we'll do this together. So they agreed to try and carry their pregnancy to term. And in 2015, Rachel went into labor with their son. When... I was getting ready to have Jude. I was like, okay, I still want to have my tubes tied. After they, they got Jude out and cleaned him off, then they burned my tubes. And that sucks. I would love to have like 10 of my own kids, but I can't. I don't want to go through that again. I don't want to risk it. Rachel made this decision at the age of 25. They remember it as an uncomfortable decision, particularly given the dark history of the forced sterilization of thousands of Native people in the 1970s. We've been talking to Dr. Connie Yuri, who's an Indian doctor, and we've been talking about the sterilization of Indian women. A Choctaw Cherokee doctor, Connie Pinkerton Yuri, noticed patterns of sterilization at IHS facilities and went on a radio show to talk about the issue. I was asked by 15 Indian nurses who worked at an Indian hospital in Claremore, Oklahoma, to come there and to help them with their protests. And when I got there, I found that I had 
uncovered a, a sterilization factory. She began documenting the sterilization of Native people back in the early 70s, after a 26-year-old Native woman came to her asking for a, quote, womb transplant because the IHS had given her a complete hysterectomy at age 20. Their reasoning? She was having problems with alcoholism. In the testimony that I took from the Indian women, many of them were medicated when the, when the consent forms were given to them. Many of them did not know that it was not reversible. They thought that if the tube was tied, you just go in later and untie it. Is this white supremacy at work? Like, if they couldn't do it to me, they could force my hand and have me do it myself? But if I had just had, like, other Native women that I could talk to that, like, some kind of support system... It's not the same talking to a white woman about miscarriage, honestly. Because there's this aspect of, like, spirituality that I really needed. And, and I didn't have that. I don't ever want my people to go through that. And we, that's just, like, one example of, of the kind of health care that we've had for, for decades. Any reason for abortion is valid. And being a parent makes me support abortion even more. And I matter just as much as a pregnancy, if not more. This is why IWR works so hard to offer a full spectrum of reproductive health care for Native communities. And why Rachel felt obligated to have their tubes tied at 25. Because they couldn't access the reproductive health care they needed. When Rachel started IWR in 2014, it was initially to advocate for equal access to the emergency contraception pill, Plan B. They told me that IWR has since expanded to offer support services for midwifery care and also has an Indian sex ed curriculum that works with Native families and schools to provide sexual education from a Native perspective. It's not because this is our dream. We're doing it out of necessity to take care of our families, to take care of our communities. Like, we exist because the government is not doing enough. Our abortion funding also comes with political education because people have so many questions about why IHS cannot provide basic health care, like abortion care. IHS, officially known as the Indian Health Service, is the primary health care provider for some 2.6 million Native Americans although they must belong to a federally recognized tribe. The U.S. government has a trust responsibility to provide quality health care to tribes, an obligation that springs from hundreds of negotiated treaties, several of which included partial payments for acres of land. This responsibility has manifested most prominently through the creation of IHS, which was formally established in 1955. Before the IHS was created, Health-related issues and services were administered under the Department of War, intended as a remedy for the decades of historical mistreatment and abuse of Native people. But while the IHS is supposed to be a source of comprehensive and holistic health care, many Native people report difficulty in accessing abortion care through the agency which effectively denies access to this service in all but the most extreme cases. 
And that's because of the Hyde Amendment where federal dollars are not allowed for abortion care. And that includes Indian Health Services. The Hyde Amendment is a provision that bars the use of federal funds to pay for abortions. It was named after a U.S. representative from Illinois, Henry Hyde. My amendment simply provides that no funds may be used to pay for abortions except where three conditions exist. Life of the mother would be endangered or the pregnancy was caused by rape or incest. And the amendment doesn't stop with IHS. It also applies to Medicaid enrollees, federal prisoners, as well as people in the military and Peace Corps. The amendment was first passed by Congress in 1976, just three years after Roe v. Wade, the monumental decision made by the U.S. Supreme Court that, until this summer, provided constitutional protection for abortion. Providing a constitutional right to an abortion does not mean society has to subsidize the exercise of that constitutional right. That's meant that countless Native people couldn't receive the abortions they needed. Native teens have higher pregnancy rates than any other race or ethnicity. A Native teen seeking an abortion who doesn't meet IHS narrow exception criteria would be referred to other facilities, potentially hours away, drastically limiting their access. And even the abortions that IHS is allowed to perform under the Hyde Amendment don't always happen. When I reached out to the IHS, they confirmed data from that study I mentioned earlier. Only 25 abortions were performed or funded by the agency between 1981 and 2002. After I submitted a FOIA request for the most recent IHS numbers on abortion, they sent me data suggesting that this number had gone up significantly since 2006. But the IHS Public Affairs Office cautioned me against reporting this new data, warning that it needs to be refined to reflect an accurate count. The office said in an email that coding had changed over the years and IHS had not reviewed or verified charts between 2001 and 2021. I'm continuing to press the agency for this data. Native people seeking an abortion after rape or incest, who should have access to abortions under the Hyde Amendment, have also faced major obstacles. Before policy change this summer, the Indian Health Service required them to provide signed documentation from law enforcement or a healthcare facility within 60 days of the incident. Proving an assault may be particularly difficult because rape kits are not always available at IHS facilities, or there may not be qualified staff available to administer them. Native women are more than twice as likely to be raped the non-Hispanic white women in the U.S., and reports of violence against Native women and girls have risen during the pandemic. IHS told us that if a facility can't provide a forensic examination, it would transfer the patient to another facility. But a 2022 Amnesty International report found that survivors of rape or incest on reservations or sometimes referred to urban locations that are two or more hours away. IWR's clients come from indigenous communities or tribes from all over the United States, but about half of the clients identify as Diné or Navajo. Depending on what your emergency is, you're going to have to make a decision. Can I get to IHS? Can I go to IHS? Will this get treated? Geography and availability are 
among the top two barriers that people have to getting just basic care. And while IWR provides funding at clinics across the country, most of the clients they serve receive care in clinics in Phoenix, Arizona, Fargo, North Dakota, and Albuquerque, New Mexico. I did create a map, and there are three colors. One of them is the self-reported zip codes. So you can see like some of them are crossing state lines. Some of them are driving, you know, hours and hours. Some people from the Four Corners area are having to make a choice. Do I go to Albuquerque or do I go to Phoenix to get my abortion? Limited internet access or not having a permanent mailing address can further limit the options for Native people. They may not be able to talk with a doctor using telehealth, for instance, or easily access medication abortion. This is why IWR helps Native people by providing funds directly to abortion clinics for their procedure, as well as funds for lodging, gas, food, childcare, and other related travel expenses like plane tickets. They also work hard to develop relationships with abortion clinics, so that way they can let people know they exist and direct them to their fund. Especially if they ask uh, demographic questions like race or ethnicity. If they see someone or they know they have a patient who identifies as Native American, they can say, oh, there's this abortion fund that's just for Native people. Here's their number or here's the link to their form. Rachel sees IWR as filling a crucial need, one that shouldn't exist. If government was truly there for the people, there wouldn't be as much need for nonprofits, right? It will never do enough because it is not in its best interest to take care of poor black and brown people. We'll be right back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Access to abortion services has already been severely limited for Native people. Hyde Amendment restrictions coupled with far-flung reservations, as well as underfunded and understaffed IHS facilities, are just some of the barriers that stand between a Native person and access to abortion care, all of which existed long before Texas. Senate Bill 8 is being called one of the most extreme abortion measures nationwide. Abortions after six weeks will be outlawed, and anyone who helps others get an abortion can be sued for doing so. 
and Oklahoma passed their draconian abortion laws. Oklahoma now home to the strictest abortion law in the country. The state's governor signing a bill into law that allows an abortion only when the life of a pregnant woman is at risk or when a pregnancy is the result of rape or incest that has been reported to law enforcement. Before Roe was overturned in 2022. We're outside the Supreme Court after the landmark decision that overturned Roe versus Wade and ended a woman's constitutional right to an abortion. But I wanted to get a better understanding of the impacts these changes, along with the Hyde Amendment, will have on tribal sovereignty and how they directly impact Native people. So this summer, I reached out to Lauren Van Shelfgaard. Hi. Hey, welcome. Nice to meet you. Nice yeah. to meet you. Yeah. This is a beautiful campus. I've actually it never been to UCLA. It is really pretty. Yeah. We sat down to yeah. talk in her office at the UCLA School of Law. My name is Lauren Van Schilfgaard. I'm a tribal member of Cochiti Pueblo. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I now serve as the director of the Tribal Legal Development Clinic at UCLA School of Law. When the Supreme Court case that overturned Roe, Dobbs v. Jackson, was still pending, Lauren, along with a small coalition of scholars and advocates, submitted an amicus brief to the court, wanting to ensure that Native people also had a voice in the considerations. There was concern that in prior reproductive health cases, specifically in regards to the Hyde Amendment, that Native issues were not included, much less elevated. Even when the Hyde Amendment was being argued in the early 80s in the Supreme Court hearing Harris v. McRae, the court did not address the direct impacts that the amendment would have on Native people, despite the fact that the amendment applies directly to the IHS. Abortion care, of course, is just one form of reproductive health care, and I think it's important to note that both at IHS facilities and at non-IHS facilities, reproductive health care is really difficult to access. The Indian healthcare system consists of IHS facilities, tribally operated healthcare facilities known as 638s, and urban Indian healthcare services and resource centers, all of which receive a range of federal funding based on the number of patients that they serve. Roughly 60% of IHS funding is administered by tribes. Some of these tribes, depending on their finances and what laws apply to them, can perform abortions on demand using non-federal dollars. At an IHS facility, however, 100% of their funds are provided by the federal government. So there's no opportunity to bifurcate those funds. And so the Hyde Amendment becomes a de facto abortion ban, um, again, with limited exceptions. One of the many problems with the Hyde Amendment is that it has chilled um, abortion care at these facilities, right? They're not providing them on a regular basis. And so even if a patient did satisfy the exceptions, we're assuming that the facility is competent and has the capacity and capability to provide this care. IHS staff may also be unaware of the exceptions embedded in the Hyde Amendment. In 2021, the Southwest Women's Law Center conducted an anonymous survey with some current and former medical providers at IHS facilities in three southwestern states. Roughly half said they could not provide abortions and did not mention Hyde exceptions. I think that both the Hyde Amendment, but also just the extent to which Native people have access to substandard or distant or otherwise you know, unaccessible healthcare. Realize that you know, like, 
even if I'm trying to get an abortion and like it's technically legal, it's so difficult, I effectively don't have access. Lack of access can prevent Native people from receiving some of the most basic reproductive health care, like testing, prenatal care, and contraception. I don't think that non-Natives will even have a clue the mountain of barriers that Native people have faced. It's, it's not okay. And there are lots of people that recognize that the problem of this and the harm that it has to indigenous individuals, but also the, the ramifications that this has on Native families and Native communities and on tribes. People are clearly connecting the dots, the threat that this has onto our well-being. It just sucks that, that we have to fight these really basic battles about fundamental rights And that's disappointing. Before I left, I asked Lauren about something I had seen trending online recently. This question around abortion safe havens opening up on reservations and the limits of tribal sovereignty in states where abortion is now illegal. On the one hand, it sure is nice to have attention on Indian country and tribes and the beauty that is tribal sovereignty. On the other hand, I can't help but feel um, that it's all a little galling, that there is this what seems to be a reflex to look to tribes to, to save people from state laws people that have otherwise ignored tribes and have very little understanding of the jurisdiction as well as the vulnerabilities and just violence that Native people have been facing. Since tribes are sovereign, Lauren adds, they should have the self-determination to dictate their own reproductive health care, regardless of what state policy is. That should be the way that it is, but it's not. There has been um, a historical tendency, especially over the last 50 years, that has really eaten away at tribal sovereignty, such that tribes no longer enjoy sufficient criminal or civil jurisdiction to circumvent a, a state abortion ban. Since meeting with Rachel last year, IWR has now moved into their own office space. They invited me back to New Mexico this summer to see it and to sit in on an IWR check-in. I knew this was going to happen. Of course, I ran into Rachel while paying for parking. Hi. How are you? Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. Let me look at you. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. It's so Don't good I to look see. look so different? I don't know. Everything feels different. Everything is different. Yeah. In the last year... New Mexico has seen an increasing number of -of out-of-state patients seeking illegal abortion in its handful of clinics as demand skyrocketed. Rachel and their fund have been feeling the pressure. Hey, Cole. The IWR check-in is a mix of conversations about ceremony and business as usual, with round-robin-style updates from each member of the team on press interviews, financials, and the number of clients from the last month. I guess while we're waiting, um, Johnette, how was the first week for the fund? So I tallied up the numbers and we actually went a little bit over our monthly limit of $10,000. When Rachel first opened the abortion fund, 
IWR was only able to pay a couple hundred dollars towards a client's procedure. Now with a monthly cap of $10,000, it's able to cover most, if not all, costs, including those associated with transportation. For the month that we've been open, we've helped out 35 clients. And that's about everything for me. Thank you for that. We should be good for the rest of the year as long as we like stick to the budget and that'll give us some wiggle room. If we're hitting our cap on the first of the month every month, like it's kind of overwhelming. For the um, last few months, the abortion fund has been maxing out their monthly budget on the first day that it opens as clients in need from the month before fill up slots. This week our accountant sent us the financials. I think we're gonna have to do more individual client outreach things like on social media for the rest of the year. Uh, IWR does not receive any funding from either the state of New Mexico or the federal government. Instead, it is funded through foundational grants and individual donations. Yeah, we're really gonna have to think about what that's gonna look like because now Clinics are raising their prices. People are getting pushed further into their next trimester. And that means the cost is going to go up, which means more cost on our end for like hotel and airfare and stuff. Uh, That just goes to show the need. And then, uh, God, there's so much and I'm sorry, like I, my brain is all over the place. Rachel takes a deep breath before ending the meeting. All right, y'all, I'm going to hang up because uh, I got to go get the kids. Let me take my computer with me. But I'll see you all later. Text me or call me if you need anything. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Have a good weekend. After the meeting, I asked Rachel what other things have changed for IWR in the year since we last met everything um we've gone through a lot of growing pains we have one less staff person aside from rachel who works two jobs all of the iwr staff members are now full-time paid employees a step up from the thousand dollars a month stipends they were receiving a few years ago something rachel is really proud of our abortion fund has grown exponentially and so We got better at fundraising and we started getting bigger. We're like, okay, we can help more people. IWR is one of the few abortion funds that serve people nationwide, and they now work with 37 states. In the last year, the fund started helping Black people, undocumented people, and people traveling from Texas of any ethnicity. We served about 600 people from September 1st when SB8 went into effect, and then we when we went on a break in mid-April. I'm not trying to burn out my staff, and we're just trying to figure out, like, how do we protect ourselves emotionally, spiritually, and also financially. Collaboration with other organizations and some celebrity recognition helped boost their funding in the last year. And when they're too strapped for resources, they send people to other abortion funds in the area, like the New Mexico Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice, or the Mariposa Fund. We've been living with this for a really long time, and just because it's impacting white women now, or they're perceiving it as impacting them, now it's something that we need to address now.
This is also something that is reflected in the callers that reach out to IWR. Rachel says that there has not been much speculation around a post-Roe world because for a lot of Native people, living without access to abortion has been their reality. They're already crossing state lines. They're already having to leave their families and stay in a strange city that they would rather not be in. They're already having to leave their kids behind and they already don't want to do that. We're already seeing (laughs) what that looks like. It'll just be even harder and people will just have to travel even further. And so we anticipate that we're going to see more of our resources being put into practical support, which is like airfare, gas, longer stays in hotels. We're already there. It's just going to be more widespread and more people are going to feel that impact. The targeted control of Native reproduction, along with underfunded health care, has resulted in disproportionately poor reproductive health outcomes for Native people, including high rates of maternal and infant mortality and sexually transmitted infections, creating an even bigger need for outside organizations like IWR. We need people to be sustainable donors, and that will never be enough until the government pays for that, until nobody has to pay for anything to just be well. It's inherent in our language and in our cultures and in our ceremonies for us to be well. If we're not well, we cannot be good stewards of the land and the water. Abortion is a need, just like breastfeeding support, just like getting treatment for a yeast infection, just like getting a pap smear. Like, we need all of those things to be well. It's so much bigger than abortion. It just sucks that abortion is this super stigmatized, very common health procedure that our ancestors helped each other through that is so criminalized and heavily stigmatized. And it wasn't always like this. Our ancestors have had abortion since time immemorial, since our creator put us here since, you know, whatever origin story, that we have controlled our fertility for centuries, and it's not going to stop. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This episode was reported and produced by me, Adriana Rodriguez, in partnership with Type Investigations, where I was an Ida B. Wells Fellow. It was edited by Adisa Egan, Noi Trupkow, Cassie Feldman, and Stephanie Karaoke, with research assistance from Paco Alvarez. Special thanks to Sharon Estoya, 
Jordan Bennett Begay, Sarah Deer, Abigail Echohawk, Savannah Mayer, and Michael Ribnitsky. Vice News Reports is hosted by Ariel Dumras and produced by Sophie Cases, Jen Kinney, and Adriana Tapia. Our senior producers are Jesse Alejandro Catrol, Julia Nutter, and Sam Greenspan. Our supervising producer is Ashley Cleek. Our associate producers are Steph Brown, Sam Egan, and me, Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Evan Sutton, Pran Bandy, and Kyle Murdoch. Mixing by Evan Sutton. Our executive producers are Adiza Egan and Stephanie Kariuki. For Vice Audio, Annie Avales is our executive editor, and Janet Lee is our senior production manager. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. I want y'all to give it up as much as you can. I know it's a little hot, but give it up for Rachel Lorenzo. beautiful intro. First and foremost, let's just acknowledge the fact that right here, right now, we are on Stolen Tila Labs. No matter where you live, no matter where you come from, no matter where you will go, you will always be on Stolen Land. On my land, on my children's land, on my relatives' land from every direction, north to south and east to west again. My ancestors paid with their lives, with their language, with their culture for all of us to be here. The very, the very least this fascist government can do is guarantee health care for everyone. We don't just get free health care. I'm going to tell you something right now. My people have been living without Roe since the 70s. We've never known a world where Roe was guaranteed. And let me tell you right now, Roe is the bare minimum that this country can do for us. The bare minimum. We are we deserve more than the minimum. Since we've been funding abortion in 2018, we have funded about a thousand people across this country. Abortion will always be necessary. Before I go, I want to say we love our land, we love our people. And no matter, for me, the personal, the financial, the legal risk, I am ready to get fucking rowdy. One more thing, one more thing. Today's ruling proves the only thing more sensitive than a clit is a cishet man.